it did go to Copenhagen. So apologize for that. Um, but I hope that we will have um, an interesting um, panel debate here today. Um, it is on Copenhagen, COP15, um, what happened and what next. Now this um, event is co-organized co by the Environmental Change Institute, the Oxford Center for Tropical Forests and the Tyndall Center on Climate Change Research. And um, I have here a very distinguished panel. Um, I'll start introducing those from the right. Um, as you see on Skype, we have Diana Liverman with us. She's, yes. <laughs> She's the former ECI director, currently um, professor of um, develop, um, environment, I was going to get this right, um, geography and development at Arizona, um, the University of Arizona, and also a visiting um, professor um, with the um, geography department. Um, because of the Skype situation and because this is something we haven't tried before, um, we need to use microphones to make sure that Diana can hear us and um, I hope that we'll be able to hear Diana as well, we'll find out in a minute. Okay, so next on my right we have Yedvinder um, Mali, who's Professor of Ecosystem Science here at the School of Geography and the Environment and he's also the Director of the Oxford Centre for Tropical Forests. Um, next on my right, we have Mark Linus, who is a writer and um, is probably well known to you all for his book, um, Six Degrees, Our Future on a Hotter Planet, which also won the prestigious Royal Society Prize for Science Books, and he's currently a visiting research associate with the um, School of Geography. And then um, on my left, I have James Painter, who is a BBC journalist and currently based at the Writers Institute um, of, for the study of journalism here in Oxford. Now all our panellists um, were at COP15 in a number of capacities, so we have both people from um, the University of Oxford, but also from the um, delegation of Gabon and the delegation of the Maldives here with us, as, a, as well as um, with um, James being with the um, BBC, but also in a number of capacities that he will enlighten us in a minute. So um, just to start off and give you just a quick overview of what happened and um, where we are now, and then I'll, I'll um, do a first round of um, um, commentaries um, from the panel. So COP15 took place in December 7th to 18th of December. It's usually a two-week period that COP, the COPs meet for. The COP itself, standing for the Conference of the Parties, is the main decision-making body of the UNFCCC, which stands for the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, which was adopted in 1992. In, 2000, no, in 1997, the Kyoto Protocol was ratified, which was a protocol that would give a little bit more teeth to the framework convention. And what was decided was that in regular periods a new, a new agreement would be negotiated um, to um, reach what's called the ultimate objective of the framework convention, which is try to try to keep the climate system at a stable level. So at, um, at two years ago, at um, the, the Bali COP, it was decided that there would be a, a two-year process to negotiate a new protocol. Now, this didn't quite happen for a number of reasons, and I, I hope that um, we will, we will um, understand these reasons a little better at the end of um, this, this um, discussion that um, a new protocol would be ratified. Now, this didn't happen. What we got instead is the Copenhagen, the Copenhagen Accord, which is a document that was never actually um, formally adopted by the UNFCCC Conference of the Parties. So it's a document that in some way may, may have um, made progress on a number of issues, but it's an informal document. So for now, the, the process will continue. So I want to now... Um, ask Diana what she thinks about COP15, whether she thinks it, that it was a success or a failure and why. Okay, hello everybody. Can you hear me? Yes. yes. Okay, well this is an experiment. This is uh, no carbon participation and I should say that I actually haven't fully left Oxford. I still have a part-time affiliation with Oxford University and I 
will be there in person uh, at some point, but I'm hoping that uh, I can also participate in activities as an avatar, as I am at the moment. <laughs> uh, so in terms of Heike's question about whether Copenhagen was a success or a failure, um, I actually did a couple of media interviews during uh, the Copenhagen meeting where I was relentlessly optimistic, but um, by the end of the last Saturday, um, I think uh, my optimism had been um, punctured, and I would say now that overall Copenhagen was um, a failure, but that's not to say there's not some signs of life there, and um, although there were no binding decisions. I think there were some um, important things that happened there. Uh, first of all, the amount of money that was put on the table, um, which was 10 billion a year for the next three years, and then a sort of rather vague promise of 100 billion a year by 2020 for the response to climate change. I mean, that is serious money. And for a number of uh, smaller countries, that money really could uh, make a difference. And we can come back to whether it's really additional money and whether people are going to come up with it, um, perhaps in the discussion. The problem with the money being on the table was they didn't get to the point where they could uh, really sort out um, how it would be allocated, you know, how much is for mitigation, how much for adaptation, who would actually get it. Um, there's a lot of uh, sort of governance issues that haven't been sorted out. Um, the other reason why I think Copenhagen failed was, was the diversion into the Copenhagen Accord, uh, which um, was in a way completely outside the UNFCC process. That could have been done at a G20 meeting. It really wasn't part of the UNFCC process, and that was part of the reason things fell apart towards the end, was that it, 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 it stopped being a, a UN process. <clears throat> Um, the other diversion that I think did create a problem in the first week was the push by some NGOs and a number of countries um, to renegotiate the temperature target to 1.5 degrees. I mean, I think there are good reasons for doing that, but bringing that up at the COP um, sort of diverted a lot of energy and created some anger really early on that I think um, uh, created some problems. Now, one um, sort of interesting thing is right now over the next week, um, Brazil and China and India, the basic countries, are going to meet and talk about um, their response to Copenhagen. And that's where I see a little bit of optimism. I think that uh, the discussion that's happened since about the role of China that Mark contributed to um, may mean that we do get something out of this meeting of the, uh, if you think, of the large uh, developing countries. So I think we may get some interesting commitments there. Um, I would say the um, other thing that was good um, that uh, happened at Copenhagen was the number of countries that did come willing to make binding commitments. Now, there were a lot that didn't, which is why we don't have a binding agreement. But if you look at country, the commitments that were made by countries like Brazil and Mexico and South Africa and Indonesia, this is a completely new era where these countries are... Uh, putting commitments on the table, partly in the expectation of financing, but that, that made for a very uh, different negotiation. And I think the other thing that was interesting about Copenhagen, and I'm not sure if it was a good thing or a bad thing, was the very large presence of civil society. Some people feel like that completely got in the way, um, but it, it was a, an incredible mobilization. Um, and then the final thing I us successful in Copenhagen was that agriculture, which is something that I'm uh, very concerned about, uh, came to the table for the first time. They saw how successful the forest lobby had been, which is an alliance of private sector, NGOs, scientists and governments um, in uh, getting themselves to be part of the climate deal. And one of the things that happened in Copenhagen was the really powerful agricultural interests and countries uh, came together for the first time, I think, to uh, think very seriously about the role of agriculture and food systems, both in adaptation and mitigation. So a failure, but some signs of hope. And personally, uh, my focus now, because of where I'm located and because of where I do my research, is that the next uh, negotiations are going to be in Mexico City. And the Mexican government is trying very hard um, to figure out how to make it a, a more of a success and how to get some binding commitments there.
The final comment I'd make was that um, I was sort of together with Heike leading the Oxford delegation in Copenhagen and um, we actually held a dinner for alumni of um, the master's programs uh, at Oxford and it was really amazing uh, how many of our alumni were there working for their governments, working for NGOs. So um, that sort of was a, a point of light as well. I was really proud to see um, the, the number of our former students and our current students who were um, so seriously involved in what was happening. So that's my initial statement. Thank you, Diana. Okay, I'll pass on the microphone to Yadvinda for his comment. <coughs> Thank you, Heike. Uh, I think, uh, like Diana, I started off spending much of my time in, in Copenhagen being an optimist. And part of that optimism came from sort of the sheer enthusiasm, the vitality of so many people from NGOs through to heads of state. They're talking the same language with the same agenda. And so there was, some, there was even in the most negative points of those two weeks, there was a lot of positive energy. But then at the end, I have to say that I was deeply disappointed with the outcome and sort of felt, was almost traumatised for, for, for several days afterwards. I think several of us were. And, and partially for me, it was just sort of seeing global geopolitics exposed at its rawest level and, uh, uh, amidst all, all the aspirations that, that, that the world had. Uh, I, I'm a relative newcomer to following the COP processes. I went, I went to Bali and to this one. So perhaps it's useful for many of of you here to just briefly describe how it works. When all your news is filtered through BBC News reports, it's almost hard to see what's going on there. Uh, and so what happens is that I, I went in there as Oxford University, but also there as an advisor to the delegation of Gabon, which also meant that I could stay in until the end. Uh, and, wasn't there, and so I actually could follow the negotiations through till the end. And uh, so I tried to. Uh, and so what happens is after the initial plenaries, groups of delegates break off into groups of around meetings of around 30, 40 people to tackle specific negotiating tasks. So I was following the, the, the forests, the reduced emissions from deforestation negotiations, but other ones go on on adaptation, on international financial architecture, aspects of the Kyoto Protocol as well. And the, in the ideal scenario, by about the Thursday of the second week, those negotiators come back with nice text with only a few little, uh, uh, most things agreed, and a few key things that are then pushed up towards ministers or heads of state for the big deals that need to be cut about internet overall financial architecture, overall commitments, but then the, the details have been worked out, the nitty-gritty has been worked out underneath. That first process was moving at a very slow rate, and we can now debate to what extent that is almost built into a system that requires agreement by 192 countries uh, uh, and uh, there were several stages of, of workout uh, of mistrust between the G77 and, and, the, uh, and the, the rich world in particular which also lost several days and so by Thursday most of those negotiations were nowhere near at an adequate enough advanced stage uh, to, to be ready to be pushed up to ministers. The forest one that I was involved in actually did seem to be almost the golden child there in terms of actually had had moved to, to as far as it could move before needing higher level uh, agreements uh, to, to come in on overall ambition and overall financing. And then the second stage is that ministers and then heads of state then come in and cut the big deals. And that process also failed. And by the Mark would probably have insights into, into some, some of those uh, things that happened on the final Friday and why that <coughs> process also failed, made progress in some things, particularly the finance, as Diana mentioned, but failed to cut the, a big deal that was adequate enough and strong enough uh, to, to, to even be a, a non-binding, a non a, a strong Copenhagen agreement. Uh, so having said that, that's an overall pessimism. There, there, was, there was clear progress within that, and one thing is, is the, the, sheer level, the, the degree of commitment from countries and from states within countries, states within Brazil, uh, some of the African countries as well. Uh, so so this, the sheer level of energy around it seems to be moved, have moved up to, to a higher level. And being that it's hard to see that you can reverse that or dispel that. I think the, the, the degree of uh, awareness of the issue and engagement of the issue is far higher than it was uh, a, a year ago. 
and then, then there's the intangibles around that the, the various new deals being cut the new the new bilateral agreements uh, uh, between countries other things that are, that are happening around in that in that venue uh, as well uh, the other thing uh, another specific area of progress was the the forest deal the that that's going to be the text is almost there with that um, uh, so the and that's going to be some sort of deal uh, around reduced emissions from deforestation, red plus. So it's going to be reduced emissions from slowing down deforestation rates in high deforestation countries, while also some finance going to low deforestation countries so that the deforestation won't leak into those low deforestation countries. Uh, and uh, the, and the, uh, the basic architecture of that is, is, seems to be in place. The safeguards are also written into the draft text in terms of protecting indigenous people's rights and local community rights, protecting biodiversity uh, aspects of that. So uh, the, the particular sectors like that have made progress. What they're waiting for is the overall architecture in terms of finance and targets into which those <coughs> sectors uh, can fit. And, and one thing that we can perhaps discuss later is whether all of that needs to happen within this UN architecture or whether moving to approaches that are based on sectors that can move forward uh, may, may be some, some, uh, another way to, to, to go forward. Uh, so there were areas of progress and there was incremental progress. Uh, however, the climate change negotiations, to me, are not like the world trade negotiations or various other UN negotiations where you can afford to have incremental progress and kick things for next year and the, and the year after. And so uh, at the end of it, I stand pessimistic, and I think that uh, a two-year holding warming below two degrees is increasingly becoming a fiction, not only, not only because of the delays in the negotiation process, but also the inevitable inertia in implementing anything that, 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 that is agreed. That it's, uh, so you know, there was a lot of talk about pushing towards one and a half degrees, which I, I think even two degrees is becoming an increasingly un unlikely target to, to, to be achieved in reality. So the final question perhaps comes on, we'll discuss in the later round, is how, my question to you is how much moves forward within the UN process and how much can move forward with the assistance and in cooperation with the UN process, but how much can change can be materialised in parallel to the, to, to, to the UN process? Thank you, um, Yedvind. Okay, um, I'll pass it on now to Mark. Thanks. Um, the thing you have to realise about these COP negotiations is just how intense it is. And you'll be able to speak to this, everyone who's there will be able to speak to this. It's emotionally very intense, it's physically very testing. You really have to have incredible powers of endurance to deal with the lack of sleep that you get. I think on average for, for uh, an 11 day period I probably slept 3 to 4 hours a night and for the last 2 nights I didn't sleep at all Ed Miliband didn't sleep for 3 nights his head of delegation didn't sleep for 4 you know, so it's, it really is a very difficult um, context within which to, to actually do any kind of serious decision making or deal making so it, it, you know, the, the, how much you can endure that kind of pressure is actually at the centre of this the other thing I noticed was how nothing is what it seemed. It's a bit like being in a hall of mirrors. When somebody stands up and speaks, they don't mean what they say. They may well be speaking on behalf of somebody else with a hidden agenda that you didn't previously know about. And it takes a very long time to figure out what these, what these hidden agendas may be. And of course, you can never be absolutely certain because the person who's telling you also has a hidden agenda. And, and so you end up coming to your own conclusions about these kinds of things, but they're open to challenge because nothing is... You know, it's very different for the world of science, where you can have references and you can go and check things up. It's the, the exact opposite of this. Everything is smoke and mirrors, and everything is done by word of mouth, which really matters. And it took me a week of sitting in these um, uh, sort of open meetings with the KP track and the LCA track and all these things. I won't explain what they all are, but that, that, those are where the open negotiations take place between the delegations of the different countries. And you have to be a lawyer to understand anything that's going on there. There's no point in just being an ordinary person. Um, so I was there sitting behind the Maldives flag going, what on earth is going on? You know, but luckily there were, we had a couple of lawyers who we could, we could call on as well. Um, but it took me until the sort of final Thursday to realise that that was a complete charade and nothing that was agreed in those open meetings would actually have any impact at all on the final deal that was done. Um, and finding out what that deal was likely to look, likely to look like um, became my next sort of challenge, really, and, and trying to make sure that the Maldives, who, I'm, who I was working with as, as an advisor to the president, had a role within that. 
Now, just to rewind the clock a little bit, I've been involved with the, the Maldives government since um, March 2009, where we thought it would be a good idea for the whole country to go carbon neutral. And so this was announced by the president at the premiere of the Age of Stupid film, if any of you saw that. And then I was sort of felt, well, I'm a bit committed to this now because I've sort of helped them develop this. So we had to develop a plan for carbon neutrality, and then I, got, then I sort of had to go on the delegation, and one thing led to another. And so I found myself there in most of the major meetings, sitting behind the president, and including in the final Friday night, um, where, I was, where I was with the president in the heads of state meeting, which actually sort of thrashed out the final deal. Now, the text that came into that deal, I think, had been pre-agreed by the US, um, China, India, uh, Brazil, and South Africa, so the basic countries. So it's important to understand from the outset that the Copenhagen Accord is primarily a product of, de of the major developing countries. This is, not, this is not a deal, whatever the NGOs like to say, this is not a deal that was stitched together by the rich world. And the weakness of the accord, in fact, primarily represents the interests of the, of the big developing countries who, who brought it together. And I think it was the gradual realisation of this, uh, that this was a di very different situation from previous COPs that I've been to. I mean, I was in Bali, I was in, right the way back to 2000 in The Hague. Uh, and then it was very much a sort of battle between the industrialised countries, you know, the US in particular, Australia, the Umbrella Group, who were the powerful bad guys at that point. Um, now, that, that, that divide doesn't exist anymore. Um, you know, the, the Australians and the US and, and the Brits and most of the European countries seem to be the good guys. They want, they want to take strong targets and they want to see a, a serious outcome and they want future legally binding deals and so on and so forth. Um, so you've got to look somewhere else for where these blockages are occurring. And it took me a long time to figure out where that was. And the, the, the truth about it actually is very unpalatable to a lot of people who have been involved in the process for a long time, because the game has changed. Um, the, the blocking does not come from the, rich, the big rich countries anymore. It's, it's absolutely fair to say that they haven't delivered their side of the Kyoto bargain. They didn't make the kinds of cuts that they were meant to make, particularly the Americans, of course. Um, but starting from where we are now, solving climate change is going to require major action from the big developing country emitters, so the very big rapidly emerging powers. China, India in particular, in the lead of that. Um, and this was the huge, huge issue at Copenhagen. Would the developing countries move on taking their own mitigation actions? Now, there is a sort of window for doing this, which is called Nationally Appropriate Mitigation Actions, NAMAS, which was one of the things which was agreed at Bali. But actually getting um, some of these big countries to agree to any of these things was really the main issue here. And this was what I was so struck and appalled by when I was in this heads of state meeting was that the main numbers which we had been calling for as part of the AOSIS of the small island states for our survival, um, 1.5 degrees was, was key to that, as was 350, but in order to achieve any of these kinds of temperature targets, you have to have a peaking year and you have to have a global emissions cut by a certain time. Um, those, key, those key numbers were taken out by China and also taken out by India. Now, this realisation, um, well, the fact this this... This process that I actually saw, I mean, the, the, um, Kevin Rudd, the, the Prime Minister of Australia, was, was clearly furious. Angela Merkel was sort of banging the table, saying, why can't we do this? And, and what that was about was about the Chinese insistence that Annex 1 targets, so the rich country targets, should also be taken out of the agreement. And this is the absolute clincher for me. When I'm, I have any NGOs or any campaigners saying to me, you know, you have to keep the blame on rich countries. I say, well, why in that case was it the Chinese government which insisted that rich country targets were taken out of the deal? You have to explain that. And if you can't explain that, then you need to develop a new analysis, I think. Um, and so it's that story which I saw taking place and which was the background of all of this, of course, when it came to the plenary and it was then attacked by developing countries like Bolivia and Cuba for being too weak, the point was that the, it was the big developing countries who were supposed to be in the alliance with the small developing countries who had made it weak in the first place. And, and this is what I mean about the smoke and mirrors. Of course, if, you, if you'd just been observing this as a member of the public, you wouldn't have any idea that all of this stuff was going on in the background. But it's, absolute, it's, it's absolutely critically important to try and understand why the Copenhagen Accord was A, so weak, and B, almost rejected by the public plenary and just noted rather than uh, formally adopted as a decision. Um, and, of course, what this means for the future is that the EU was completely sidelined. The EU was, was more or less irrelevant at this. The Americans uh, were having rings run around them, and the whole conference really stood or fell with what the big basic, these basic countries, but primarily India and China, wanted to see happen. So we're in an entirely new game here, I think, uh, where the rich countries do not have 
the absolute say say uh, say so on what happens in the future with the climate change negotiations. It very much depends on what the big developing country emitters want to do as we go forward. And of course, this is what's most important for the uh, climate change outcome for the world because pretty much all of the future emissions rises are going to be in the developing world. Uh, industrialized countries have probably peaked and will probably continue to decline from this point on. So whether we get to 2 degrees or 1.5 or 5 degrees really depends on what the Chinese uh, and, and, other, and the other big developing country emitters agree to do. So that's where the politics is moving and that's where the big game uh, has shifted towards. And I, I'm really strongly calling on NGOs and campaigners and other observers to, to try and realize this, to try and do some of the numbers and to stop just saying, Obama should have done more and, you know, and all the rest of it, this stuff that you've been hearing for 10 years, 20 years, actually try and realise that the geopolitics has changed very radically here and that we need a different kind of strategy to put pressure on different actors as a result. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, James, what were your impressions? <laughs> well, I was there in three capacities, actually. The first, um, I was helping some Latin American journalists uh, trying to orient their coverage Secondly, I was there as the Reuters Institute because we're going to do a study on uh, media coverage of Copenhagen. And the third, I was there as part of the BBC team writing for uh, the BBC America's website, uh, specifically on red and other things of interest to uh, Latin America, but also blogging about what the role of Latin America, particularly Brazil and Venezuela and Bolivia is. But I was party to a lot of the BBC discussions about what we thought was going on at the time, so I was in a very, very privileged position. I thought, rather than analyse whether it was a success or, or failure, I would very briefly make three or four points seen through the prism of the media, because I do, I do think the way the media reported it does actually throw light on what Mark was saying about this shift in geopolitics and how these conferences now work. But before I do that, I would just say one very positive thing in my aspect, in my view, is that uh, there were 5,000 journalists there. 5,000. Now, in my understanding, that was, apart from sporting events and possibly the inauguration of Obama, the biggest turnout for any international event anywhere in the world. Now, I remember walking down with uh, Yavinda down this huge hangar and looking just at the number of journalists. And I think the key, one of the really interesting things about that was the number of journalists from precisely the big developing countries that now see this as a hugely important uh, issue to cover. So there were something like 300 journalists from China, Brazil and India alone. And there were many, many more journalists from developing countries, particularly if you compare it with Bali. I think the killer statistic was something like under 10% of the journalists were from developing countries. I would be very surprised if it wasn't much bigger than that. And on balance, even though many of those journalists might have been reporting about that it was a partial failure or total failure, I think the fact that there was so much more coverage of climate change is a very positive uh, <coughs> development. But three quick points about the media. I think what people haven't mentioned so far is Obama. And I personally think that this might be, you could spin this as a success if what Obama got out of this uh, political accord will help him get some sort of cap-and-trade legislation through uh, the US Senate. I think that what was really interesting from a media point of view was that Obama's presence at Copenhagen was very strongly played to a US domestic TV audience. You know, there were great hopes that he would make this plenary speech, you know, inspiring everybody to come to a new deal. What did he do within two or three minutes but criticise China? That played extremely well with a US domestic audience. Remember that the first thing that most delegates, let alone journalists, knew about this political accord was through, first of all, a White House uh, uh, leak and then uh, a, a press conference given by Obama at peak time for a US domestic audience in which he was quite clearly able to present this political cord as something like a success. I think his exact uh, words were as unprecedented breakthrough. Now to the non-initiated playing to a US TV audience, and remember that uh, most people in the US still get their information from the TV despite uh, 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 the advance of the internet, this was 
a very skillful media management on the part on the part, on, on the, part of Baham, uh, the Obama administration, and it was extraordinary when we were covering it that at the very time there were White House leaks saying talking about this uh, a political accord. Um, BBC journalists was receiving texts from Miliband Aid saying no deal imminent. In other words, you know the EU and even the UN process and most delegates, most journalists did not know what was going on on this political accord, which is an extraordinary. And yet, I think the White House press corps were the first to be able to question Obama about it. And certainly some of my colleagues at the BBC felt that they gave him a very easy ride. So in a 24-hour news <coughs> culture, to an uninitiated audience, Obama, I think, was able to present it as something of a success. Now, you could argue that's extremely helpful to Obama. Remember, Kyoto lost in the Senate 95-0. Why did it lose? Mainly because of uh, objections that Brazil and India weren't on board. They are on board now, and, and I think Obama would be able to present it uh, as a, was able to present it as something like a success. Point number one. Point number two. If you're there and covering as a journalist, exactly what Mark was saying about China. China is incredibly difficult to cover. They won't talk to you. They're very uh, loath to give off the record or on the uh, on the record briefings. Even a Chinese journalist who was sitting next to me was uh, pulling his hair out because no one was talking about what China was doing. And I think that means that there's very little scrutiny of what the role that China played in those negotiations. And it was left to Mark's uh, analysis of what China did. I don't think that was anywhere else in the, in the Western media. And so you needed actually to be there because it was very difficult for journalists to get that sort of analysis of information. <coughs> The third aspect I would just stress is that one of the faults, I think, of, of the media very often is, is that they lump the group of 77 plus China together. Uh, it's, it's treated as a homogeneous block, when it was quite clear by the end that there were very, very important differences. Uh, Bolivia and Venezuela and Sudan got a huge amount of publicity, and if you read some of the media coverage, I think you would jump to the conclusion that everyone from the group of 77 the developing countries was against the deal. Correct me if I'm wrong, but in those last sessions, an awful lot of uh, developing countries, uh, including who Mark was representing, the Maldives, including Ethiopia, including several other countries, were begging, or begging maybe too strong a word, but were certainly arguing very strongly in favour of the political accord we <coughs> agreed. Correct me if I'm wrong. And yet, a lot of the press coverage, quoting Sudan, quoting Chavez, who got a lot of publicity, quoting Evan Morales, you got the impression that this was total rejection of the deal. The final point which I would make, which I think is of interest to this audience, is you know, what, what, how much publicity did the science get, particularly at the end? You know, and of course, from a journalistic point of view, no one's going to, you know, this sort of messy denouement on the geopolitics was absolutely fascinating. And of course, journalists are going to pick up on that. But I would say three things that slightly surprised me. There were three quite important pieces of science that came out in the second week. I think the first was the leaked document from the UNFCCC itself, saying that with the commitments from industrialized countries, we were still committed to a three-degree rise. That seemed to be an extremely important piece of information. But because of the geopolitics uh, and this, uh, the, the interest of the last-minute negotiations, that virtually got lost. In the last week, the World Meteorological Organization announced that the Nautis was the hottest, was the hottest de decade ever on record. I don't think there was any coverage of that at all. Uh, uh, and finally, I think it was the same in the, set, the final week, the EPA in the United States uh, uh, announced that uh, um, they would start putting into practice um, uh, uh, controls over emissions because they proved that CO2 was uh, unhealthy. And, and the Senate is going to vote on that very soon. That got lost as well. In other words, I'm afraid that the science gets lost. How many people actually of the Western media or main media organisations turn to scientists for reactions at the end of those messy negotiations? I think very few. And I think it's, it's a great shame, but um, um, that's what happens, that the science gets lost. So those are my three or four points. Great, thank you. I'd like to open it up now to the audience, and um, I'd like to take three or four questions and then turn back to the panel. So if I can get any show of hands, one, two, three, four, and that's it, and we'll do another round. 
My name is Juan Arredondo. I was a member of the Mexican delegation to the, to the process. And I would like to ask a question to the, to the panel. What about the role of the Danish government throughout the whole process in, in, during the whole year? Because they didn't help at all. <laughs> Thank you, and thanks for being short too. <laughs> I, I can't speak up from here. No. Diana won't hear you. Uh, Mark, I have a deep respect for your understanding of the process, but I'm quite bemused uh, at your analysis. You're trying to invite us to shift blame to China. And you fail to uh, recognize the fact that in the run-up to Copenhagen, um, China have been, and, and, and G77 have been consistently making the point that they are turned by the U.S. and the developed countries to breach the firewall by failing to recognize the categorization that was subsistent in the Kyoto Protocol was actually uh, alienating the developing countries and was going to ultimately result in the lack of trust that will kill the, the Copenhagen process. You failed to engage with the fact that here you could only promise 20% and 30% if other people came on board. And that the, con uh, the, uh, the totality of all the pledges by the developed countries were far beyond what science was calling for the developed countries to do. You haven't engaged with the fact that even though the numbers that you mentioned was put on the table, there was no corresponding finance until the last moment to actually show or demonstrate to the developing countries that the developed countries were, were keen to, to make a deal. The, uh, the text that was submitted by uh, America a few days before Copenhagen was saying, we, will, we are ready to provide finance as adequate in Appendix 1. You go over to Appendix 1, it was a completely blank document. Now, you fail also to recognize that during the run-up to Copenhagen, the uh, developed countries started talking less about technology transfer, which they said they would do, which is documented in the Kyoto Protocol, and started talking about the facilitation of technology transfer. And I can go on and on and on on flagrant breaches of trust by developed countries that actually alienated China and the developing countries. And here you are trying to invite us to shift the blame to China. I'm not a China or a Chinese delegation, but I think that your analysis is very, very uh, inadequate. And, and that takes me to the point that Diana and Avinda was making. I think, again, I'm bemused that you people went there with such level of optimism. How could you be optimist when uh, America clearly had 18% target by 2020 on 25, uh, by, by year 2025? We all understand that Kyoto didn't fly because America was not on board and that Obama was uh, more or less a prisoner, a hostage to his parliament. And that unless U.S. makes a, a commensurate uh, pledge, that there was no deal that was going to ever come out of uh, Copenhagen. And as we move on to Mexico, no amount of goodwill from the basic country, China included, can bring a deal if America is not on board. And America cannot come on board except the Senate gives a go-ahead order. And the legislation of the Senate is, is very, very weak. I think we should focus on the core issue rather than trying to shift blame to China. Thank you. Um, pass the microphone down. Pass it down. Uh, thanks. Um, and introduce yourself, please. My name is Sandeep Sengupta. I'm a DFL candidate in international relations, and I also had the privilege of uh, serving on the Indian delegation at Copenhagen, though um, the views that I express are entirely personal and, and my own. Um, <laughs> like uh, the gentleman from Mexico, again, I would reiterate the, the fact that no mention has been made of the role of the Danish presidency, and also agree quite completely by the remarks that I made beforehand uh, uh, by the last questioner. Um, I had two questions for Mark. One, a substantive question, and the second, a more procedural question. On the substantive question, again, I, um, I quite fail to see the sort of the merit of the argument if you seek to push the blame for the failure at Copenhagen on China alone. Um, because I think from a lot of people 
who attended the conference would give alternative explanations for the failure of of the conference and i think it's important for an audience like this to understand that there are alternative explanations uh, out there uh, one possible explanation could be that during the course of the conference itself it became very clear by the beginning of the second week that the parties especially from annex 1 particularly the just cans groups were not negotiating in good faith at all i mean essentially no progress was being made either on the kp tracks or on the lca tracks because people were not willing to make any progress the whole motivation was that let's let's keep the ball still on these two tracks let's wait till the top guys arrive and let's try and stitch up a deal which can be presented at that level automatically independent of the un process so i think some of the motivations behind what led to that final night and who were the actual movers behind it certainly needs to be recognized in greater depth and through a broader lens i'm not saying that your analysis is entirely incorrect or you know there is no merit to it at all my only point is that there are other lenses through which uh, the copenhagen process needs to be looked at on the process side of it i just had uh, you know a more sort of um, question to ask of you uh, from a journalistic point of view um, i mean i read your article in the guardian it was a very interesting piece and i was just wondering that you were there as part of the moldavian delegation clearly you know that gave you privileged access to that uh, just before writing the article itself did you have to go through a process of clearance um, a process of vetting uh, before you could do that because i mean you've written stuff in the article that other people may disagree with but might not have the luxury to express that disagreement in the way that you have thank you can i Yes, last one. Brief. Hi, my name is Uber Ahmed. I'm journalist for the Reuters Institute. What I hear from the panel, I see there is. It's not just in this panel; it's it's in the media. It's otherwise as well. There is a concerted effort to <clears throat> go ahead on climate uh, negotiations from where we stand now and not go back to the corridor. the problem with that is that well pragmatically obviously we we want to do something about it obviously otherwise it it's going to affect all of us but doesn't it seem that the way usa was reluctant to ratify the kyoto protocol in the senate and whatever the reasons whatever the reasons whatever their domestic politics is but what if china keeps doing that till their emissions peak and what then if india keeps doing that if their emissions peak so shouldn't we pay, be paying some attention to to the fact that if developing countries especially usa have been damaging the environment for so long there has to be something that they pay back to take the emissions down rather than their emissions having already peaked and they come down slowly and slowly and then they shift the blame on china say they are the biggest emitters now while the fact is that per capita USA is far ahead of any other country. Great, thank you. Very good questions. Um because most of them were addressed to you Mark, I'll start with you. <laughs> um can I address them in the order that I remember, which is reverse order. Uh, first of all, I want to say it's actually it's it's wonderful that so many people. In fact, everyone who's spoken was there, as far as I can tell. And this is really interesting because I think the kind of post mortem process is really only just beginning. Um, and my own contribution to that was 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 just that sort of a, a sort of initial first stab at trying to understand what we'd all um, just just witnessed. In um, response to the gentleman who just spoke, I'm not at all sure I accept the relevance of per capita. equity as an argument for how you go about mitigating climate change and I'll tell you why I work with the Maldives the Maldives is the least developed country um its per capita emissions are very low um, and yet it's going for 100% mitigation it says it'll be carbon neutral by 2020 so its per capita emissions go from very low to zero now that 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 is not taking the argument that its per capita emissions should increase and we should all converge at a higher level and then decline downwards which is what the conventional approach is Um, and in fact the the Indian government says it, it won't increase its per capita emissions past those of industrial industrialized countries but that still means they're going to shoot up and up and up for many more decades and i think that's crucial for understanding the 
the actual climate change outcomes. So I challenged this whole idea of, of equity in terms of carbon emissions because, after all, as the Maldives president himself has said, it's not carbon we want, it's development, it's not oil we want, it's transport, it's not coal we want, it's electricity. And I think that's crucial. If you believe that there are alternative technologies to provide the services that carbon currently provides, then you don't need to have equality in per capita emissions and you don't need to worry so much about um, the future emissions rights based on historical responsibility. Historical responsibility is an argument for adaptation financing, in my view, only, in the sense that if you create damage and you create a mess, then you have, an, uh, we have, an, you have a responsibility to pay compensation, and that could be done through the courts. Um, but it doesn't mean to say that someone else can then go and create another mess in the future. Two wrongs don't make a right. Um, to the gen uh, gentleman from the Indian delegation, uh, you're absolutely right to raise the process point about why I wrote that piece and, and whether I should have done. And I went through many days of um, struggle uh, with both with myself and talking to other people about whether I should do that because it, it was an immense breach of confidence and I recognise that and I don't see it as a piece of journalism at all. I wasn't there as a journalist, I was there as a, as a delegate for the Maldives and as an advisor to the President. I didn't um, in the end, I, I, I felt this story had to be told, and I realised that I was the, probably the only person in the room who could tell it, and that was what was so important. I, I felt I knew something different from what the conventional reporting was, and I felt I was probably the only person with the, any kind of independence, because no, no head of state can tell it. Ed Miliband did his best in a piece in The Guardian um, a few days earlier than mine, um, where, where he did a lot of saying, look, China was, was played a very important role here. Um, but that was just seen as self-serving, you know, it's just some government minister blaming, blaming another government, you know, there was no sense of, you know, there's no reason for him to be believed. And of course, everyone else there is constrained by diplomatic protocol, as, as, is, as is right, I mean, this was not an open meeting, you, you're not there as members of the press. Um, but all that said, um, I spoke to, them, to the foreign minister of the Maldives, um, and I said, look, I'm thinking of doing this. And he said, well, you can do, uh, if, you, if you must do this, then do it, but don't identify yourself as a member of the delegation. But that actually didn't make it very difficult because I'd written plenty of pieces saying I was on the delegation. So they basically gave me, um, they, they didn't, I, mean, I didn't run my copy past them. That was the main thing. So this was not Maldives policy. This was my own independent perspective. Um, the Chinese were very upset with the Maldives. The foreign minister has since been to visit. They've called in the ambassador um, to, to, to speak to the president. So, you know, there was a lot of, sort of political um, result to this, as I expected. I, I submitted my resignation to the President of the Maldives if he chose to accept it, given, given what I'd done. Um, but I, I, I carry the responsibility for that person. <coughs> the responsibility does not lie with the, not lie with the Maldives. Um, the, the, the previous point you made, I think what, and this addresses the gentleman there, and I'll try and wind up here, is that uh, there's a big divide now in the developing countries, as James was saying, between those members of the G77 who are prepared to go look seriously at mitigation, um, and the Maldives, of course, is in the forefront of that. If we're going for carbon neutrality in 10 years, you can't get much more serious about mitigation than that. Um, and there was a meeting in, in the Maldives in November of least developed countries who are thinking of going carbon neutral, very vulnerable countries, including Bangladesh, Kenya, Tanzania, Vietnam, all looking at and there was a declaration which they produced all looking at the carbon neutral path, so greening their economies. And of course, this is a huge win because these, these poorer countries haven't put in high carbon infrastructure. They never need to do so. But you, know, you need to get the financing, you need to get the investment to allow a low carbon development path to happen from the outset rather than banging on for ages about equity and per capita emissions and stuff, which means that supposedly they're meant to build lots of coal-fired power stations and then presumably close them down in 20 years. It doesn't make any sense economically or politically. Um, so we, I think one of the big divides there was be between the sort of conventional G77 analysis, which is all about blaming the first world and refusing to do anything, um, and those developing countries who are really looking positively, putting the past behind them and saying, right, let's go for a low-carbon development path, and let's do that because it's in the interest not only of the climate, but it's also in the interest of our own peoples. Um, I haven't really got anything to add, but I, I do think it's... It's really important that Mark's analysis, even though obviously there are lots of reasons why um, uh, uh, it, there wasn't a stronger record, I don't remember reading anywhere else an insider account of actually what China's role was. And uh, it, I don't see any argument for not getting that out there. Uh, um, 
the, there was nothing, as, do correct me if I'm wrong, in any of the main media organisations about what China's role was in this. And I do think, from, even from a, a journalistic point of view, the reluctance of NGOs, who are very good, very well organised at these conferences, to blame uh, uh, China or, or India in any respect is something that does have to be looked at and doesn't get reported. Even where you don't accept the analysis that China was totally the main reason why it failed, that story must get out. I think a, a point that was made earlier that what uh, happened at Copenhagen uh, is, is symptomatic of a shift of global power uh, and the the rise of countries like Brazil, China, India, and the influence that they have, and uh, uh, and so the, the, this vision of the, of the G77 or the developing world and the equity issues as a unanimous block is also an outdated view of, of, of those issues. So uh, the, the issues around China or India's rights directly conflict with Maldives, Maldives' interest for for right to exist in 50 years or 100 years uh, time. Uh, and so I think uh, in terms of atmospheric science, the arguments around equ equity of rights to the atmosphere is a language of the 20th century, which isn't appropriate for a tw 21st century's greatest problem. And I think that there has to be equity in things, uh, aspirations in development, but, the uh, but how much can we tangle that from equity in rights to pollute the atmosphere? And development and carbon dioxide emissions don't necessarily have to be on parallel track. So I, I, th so I, I I understand with the equity, we all sort of want to talk the language of equity, but I think in terms of atmospheric science, it's a very dangerous language to, to talk. Uh, the, uh, and the, 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 just a brief, brief comment on the, on the Danish role, just as uh, you mentioned that, and, and you have as much experience and more on this though, than I do. And I think it's fair to say that the conference wasn't as well run uh, uh, internally in terms of its internal dynamic as well as the, the, the visible external part of that and I think the Danes tripped up on perhaps not being able to fully manipulate uh, and fully engage in, a, in an open way with this global, these global issues uh, and, not, um, and hopefully Mexico will do a lot better next year <laughs> <laughs> Thanks and Diana um, I'll just make a couple of comments um, the first is about the US uh, role. And um, I mean, I just don't think anybody should have expected Obama to come to Copenhagen with more than the commitment that he made in advance of the 17%, which of course we know is a pretty pathetic cut compared to the 1990 US emissions. But I think that part of the problem here is that, um, you know, the media to some extent and the NGOs are focusing on um, commitments to climate change expressed as binding percentage cuts. And I think that going forward, we're just going to have to be a little bit broader about what we take as a commitment to uh, mitigation, because whether it's China or the US, um, I think we're much more likely to get real reductions from other actions that they take. And um, there's that both China and the US, I think we uh, may have more hope in their investments in technology and R&D for getting uh, real reductions. And our challenge as researchers is to start adding up what's going on elsewhere, um, whether it's the EPA regulating CO2 in the US or Steve Chu making massive investments in energy R&D. We need to sort of be, be, be a little more encompassing about what, what we're looking for uh, in terms of reductions. We may need to change the focus um, to that because uh, China has made some serious uh, commitments in other areas other than a binding um, commitment. I do think that things are looking pretty dodgy for US legislation at the moment for a lot of reasons, but one of the things to look at is the difference between what's going on in Congress and the Senate and the attempt in the executive branch to use executive decisions to implement uh, greenhouse gas reductions. And there's a lot going on there. It's not just the EPA. It's also things that are going on in uh, USDA and transportation that um, I think Obama is doing what he can to cut emissions, but the US political process is um, a complete uh, disaster. And I think there were a lot of uh, problems with the Danish government.
their level of disorganisation. Um, I think they did, in a sense, somewhat betray the whole UNFCCC process uh, by supporting the sort of texts that were developed by very small groups of countries. Um, and uh, they contributed to the sense that um, the process of UNFCC was being betrayed. And they, that happened very early in the first week um, with the leaked uh, Danish text. So I do place some fault on the Danish government. And you can see that they were in some disarray. There were, I understand there were disagreements within the Danish uh, delegation. Thank you. Um, thank you. Okay, I'll take another three questions, and could I just remind you to introduce yourselves and be relatively brief? That would be great. Okay, I've got um, in the lady in the purple, I've got you in the grey, and then you um, in the black. First, hi. Uh, my name is Langboy Sherelle Jackson, and I'm from a Pacific island that is sinking. Um, I was a journalist at the Copenhagen. I was covering for, um, on behalf of the Pacific Island countries, there were six of us to represent all the islands in the region, which is not significant at all. But when I first got there, I just wanted to add on to um, Jane's reflections on the experience of the media. When I arrived in Copenhagen, first of all, it was freezing, um, being from a 27 degree um, environment. Um, and noticed after a week that there was about <coughs> there was forty five thousand people that came to the conference from all over the world. As an islander, I felt it was very ironic. It was very strange that you're there to make a deal about climate change, and yet you flew on planes and cars and trains that could dent the ozone and could further um, send us, you know, further down the, the ocean. But I guess that's, I felt a bit disheartened in the first week as a result of that. And also, just as an insider's perspective into Pacific Island participation, it's a junket for Pacific Islanders. There's government representatives that go there every single year, go to one hour of the meeting, cash in their per diems, and then go shopping. You know, that's a lot of them do that, and they dress really nicely to the conferences for the press conferences and um, don't really do much. So I wonder what's what's there as an accountable mechanism to ensure that these governments actually participate. But, uh, Can you pass it this way? And please be short. I've, I've got a very short question. Um, my name's Eleanor Gladman an environmental consultant. We haven't talked very much about where to from here, which was sort of the second part, I thought, of this um, hour. Um, so I'd love anyone's thoughts on that. Thanks. We'll end with that. Okay, last question. A lot has been said on China's role in the negotiations, but I mean, uh, I would like to know what role did India play in the whole scheme of things, because India did have the opportunity to play a positive role, but somehow it just didn't materialize, and so what role did India play, and what role did technology transfers, the issue of technology transfers, played in the failure of the talks? <coughs> okay, thank you. To round up, um, I'd like to um, give the panelists a chance to answer these questions, but also to maybe just leave us with one soundbite of what they think is the main issue at stake and what it is that we really need to think more about in, in, in moving forward. Is it the, the process that is uh, at fault or is there something else um, that we need to change? And I'd like to start with Diana this time. Uh, okay, well, just to be brief, um, when I think about what to focus on, I, I think I'm focusing on two things and multiple strategies. One is, what is the best strategy to decarbonize the world's energy infrastructure? And um, how can we make that the, the focus of what needs to happen going forward? And, some of the comments Mark made about opportunities for countries to uh, develop uh, on a low-carbon path are absolutely critical. 
Um, the second issue is on adaptation. I think that there is um, a great need to push that substantial amount of funds go for adaptation, and we've got to figure out a fair way to allocate those funds, both between countries and within countries. And I think that that's an enormous uh, challenge uh, to make that happen uh, appropriately. So I'll just leave it there. Thank you. Get Okay. Uh, well, in, for, for conference watchers, the, the next date to watch for is January the 31st, when all the par uh, parties to the Copenhagen Accord will have to, uh, will fill in the, the annex of that accord with, with their, their, their <coughs> targets. Uh, and that will be interesting to see whether that is simply what was there before Copenhagen or whether there is substantial movement as uh, in, in a negotiation in advance of that, and that will sort of give a first indication of of how quickly things are, are moving uh, beyond Copenhagen in, in the direction of Mexico. And the Copenhagen Accord itself is quite an extraordinary thing. It's something that the the UN process takes note of. It isn't on UN headed paper at the, de at the insistence of the Bolivian delegation. Uh, it's uh, it opens the way for, in some ways for some processes to start happening even on even that level outside of the UN process. And it would be interesting to see whether that gets absorbed back into the UN process or whether it starts taking on a life of its own as this large accord. Uh, separate from that, I, I do increasingly wonder about whether some structure that can move forward in some sectors. If the forest deal is ready, why does it have to wait for every other part of the deal uh, to, to, before it can be implemented? We're wasting the forests are being lost while we're waiting for other parts of the deal to fall in place, and can things move forward sector by sector, even if the overarching is, is going for a complete overarching entity that can, agrees on every aspect of it, the really the, the fastest, the most efficient way uh, to, to move uh, forward. So no real answers, but there's some of the questions that are in my mind, and, and sort of seeing how the process develops in the next few months, uh, and the debate develops on those, will be interesting. Um, thanks. I think what uh, what campaigners should focus on and what we should all focus on as well, if we can, is ensuring that the rich countries continue to decarbonise as rapidly as possible and that we keep pressure on them to do this. So I'm not at all suggesting that we should suddenly shift all blame to India and China and forget about what happens in the US or, or anywhere else at all. Um, quite the reverse, because the more that we mitigate in richer countries, the more that then we will have delivered the side of the bargain which was originally promised, which was that developed countries should take the lead, and that in turn will raise moral pressure on the big emerging emitters to also do serious mitigation in, in, in years to come. So there's no... I don't think we can have a kind of mutually assured destruction um, approach here where... Well, unfortunately, this is the game the EU has played, of course. They've really made a mess of this because they went to the negotiations saying, right, we'll do 20% on the outset, we'll go 20% below 1990 by 2020, but we will, we will raise it to 30% if other, if other parties step up to the table. Now, they didn't. So what does the EU do? Now, it says, right, we're not doing 30%, we'll have to do 20%, and we'll build another 10 coal-fired power stations and sod you. you know? It doesn't make any sense as a, as a negotiating strategy, nor does it make any sense as an energy policy. So the only thing that makes any sense is, is a sort of unilateralist approach to mitigation, where you do as much as you can possibly square with your domestic electorate, to be honest, which is sort of what the, the US is going to be doing. Same in Australia, same in, 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 the countries, in the other big countries. But as I say, to go back to the developed developing thing, um, the US is, a, is like the Soviet Union of energy. It's an enormous dinosaur, and they've got huge amounts of plant that they're going to have to restructure. They're going to have to rebuild all their cities. I mean, look at LA uh, in terms of its carbon, uh, you know, carbon emissions because everyone's so spread out in the suburbs. You know, um, so it's much more difficult for the US to do to go carbon neutral than it is for, for the Maldives, of course, or any other small, um, uh, least developed country. So these countries must be given the financial assistance, and they must be given a political structure which enables them to do to, to, to be supported and to take serious mitigation action. At the moment, developed countries, developing countries like the Maldives, who say we're going to get serious about mitigation, are, are seen as traitors by the other developing countries who don't want to mitigate. So you've got this big sort of political divide here going on. I think we it will be really interesting to see what happens with the basic countries um, uh, about how they actually decide what they decide to do by the January the 31st deadline. Of course, remember, India and China have a formalised alliance on climate change negotiations. They met a month before Copenhagen, and that alliance was very much what underlay 
their own strategies uh, at these talks. The G77 itself doesn't really exist, um, except as a front for, for these more powerful voices. So when you, when you hear the Sudanese um, speak and tear into the, into the developing, developed countries and say how this is a holocaust and so on and so forth, they're not really meaning that. They're actually, this is actually a, a sort of proxy for, for different kinds of interests. And it's difficult. I, I, I don't completely understand why the Bolivians are so against it. And the Cubans at the moment are trying to, trying to force everyone not to be able to actually associate with the accord at all and to say it's an illegal document. I don't quite know why they're doing that either. Um, given that most, um, what's that? Anti-capitalism. It's a global position. It's not about climate change. Yeah, I suppose. I suppose they're still fighting their anti-imperialist battles, and maybe that is what's going on. I sort of assumed that there was. It wasn't what they said it was, because that seems to be the general rule of this. But um, in, in, in the way, in the years to come, I think we've got to we've got to also really focus on getting the developing countries who are serious about um, going carbon neutral to be supported to do that. That's certainly going to be my main my main agenda as well. James. Yeah, um, very briefly, obviously from a, from a media point of view, we're going to be uh, looking at all the, um, where Copenhagen goes from here, whether it's a one-track, two-track, multi-track process, and particularly looking at um, you know, whether uh, the basic countries are, uh, are going to come up with something. But my hope, rather than uh, 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 whether it'll actually happen, is that the media as a whole does much more on the positive aspects of what countries, states, businesses, cities are doing in terms of decarbonizing uh, their economies or their, uh, their local economies. The reason is, 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 there are lots of reasons. One is the problem is that media tend to focus far too much on these events and not what's going on outside of these events. The second reason is there's all this evidence that suggests that media representations of, of, of doom and gloom does absolutely nothing to uh, motivate personal behaviour change or even involvement with the issue. So the more positive stories that the media can put out there uh, about what's going on outside of these processes, uh, the better. And I very, very much hope and argue vociferously within the BBC that we do much more of that in the months to come. Well, we will stay tuned on um, whether COP15 will um, indeed be merely a stepping stone in, this, in the process that we have or whether it might be regarded as a dead end um, in hindsight. Until then, I hope that we will keep the discussion going and we'll keep our good work up. Um, and I'd like to thank the, uh, the panel very much for a very insightful discussion. Also, um, all of you for um, taking part in it. Thank you. Just before you go, uh, we've just had a meeting before this one, uh, confirming that there's going to be a, uh, an event open to the public on Friday the 26th at 5 o'clock, probably in this very room. Sorry, Friday, February the 26th, probably in this very theatre, on what's next for climate change reporting. We've had confirmed David Shipman of BBC, David Adam of The Guardian, Fiona Harvey. So do please put that in your diaries and information will be going out soon. What next for climate change reporting if you're interested in the media? Thank you. And to add to this real quick before you are out of the room, that this was recorded by Voices of Oxford as well. So you'll be able... Voices from Oxford, and you'll be able to find it on the internet very soon. We also have an audio recording which we'll put up on the internet. You can do it, you can look at it from Hertz, but I mean, it's actually... If we were to do 1.5, what does that mean for China? <laughs> <laughs>